Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel comics on sale October 13, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. This is Marvel's Spooky Month here on the show, week two. We need to come up with a, a spooky name for the show. Last week was Marvel's Ghoul List. This week, we are Marvel's Boo List. Absolutely. And we hasten to add, when we say the Boo List, we don't mean boo it's a scary ah, boo, as in we're frightened at how good these comics are. That's right. Um, have you watched any scary movies lately? Because I watched last night for the first time, my wife saw the original 1978 John Carpenter Halloween. Oh, hell yeah. Me, I was just like, man, this is a perfect movie. Oh, God. That is on my rewatch list. Well, yes, yeah, since we last talked, I've watched a couple of October Halloween themed movies. First, I went to the new Bev, saw The Thing. Absolutely awesome. And then last night, actually, I'd never seen Beetlejuice before. Oh, wow. Watched Beetlejuice for the first time. Yeah, it's just like it's pure shot of old Timmy B. Yeah. It's good stuff. So those are some movies we're enjoying. You guys let us know what you're into for this month of October. Uh, we're always up for a good Fright Fest movie. And we do always want to hear your comments about the show. If you use hashtag Marvel's pull list on Twitter, let us know. I did see one from our pal, Karis Pollard, who says uh, that her dog, Layla, has gone downstairs and that Tucker Marcus is not as uh, dog friendly uh, a podcast host as some others. <laughs> I scared the dog away. Thank you, Karis, again for that tweet. Again, that the hashtag is Marvel's pull list. And also we have an email address, pull list at marvel.com, where you can send us your voice memos, giving your shout outs to your local comic shop, to what books you're enjoying, anything like that. Uh, you can let us know it's okay to read and okay to play on the show. That is pull list at marvel.com. That sound good, Tucker? That sounds excellent. We are here to go through all the new comics out this week. We'll give you three picks for our favorite books out this week. We'll talk about some other great books, and we'll give out awards for those. We'll also then go into what's new in collection side, what's new on Marvel Unlimited, including the new Infinity comics that are out. And uh, then we have a reading club with some great guests. Who's on this week? This week, we're talking to none other than co-writers of a bunch of excellent stuff, not least including Werewolf by Night. Taboo and B. Earl, two of the best, nicest guys around. We get into discussions of Kushala, their book. We talk about their creative process, how they met, all that good stuff. I hope listeners will be able to tell how like just delightful and great company these two guys are. By the way, if you're ever curious, week of what's the full on sale list, what's coming to MU on Marvel Limited, what's coming to collections, just hit up marvel.com every single Monday. There's a, a weekly list of all those comics. So when we talk about that'll be on marvel.com. That's where you can go check them out. Heck yeah. Let's give our picks of the week, starting with the Darkhold Iron Man number one. I will say this straight off. I hate this Iron Man look. It is disgusting. <laughs> and I, I hate it in the sense that it's great. If you look at the cover of the issue, it is just like fleshy bits protruding out of Iron Man's suit and then like merging with the technology and it's perfect for this time of the year and perfect for this story by writer Ryan North, artist Guillermo Sana, colors by Ian Herring and lettering and production by VCs Clayton Cowles. This Darkhold issue, you can read it completely on its own, but 
If you want to read the entire Darkhold saga that's going on right now, there was the Darkhold Alpha that came out recently. It sets up that a whole bunch of heroes came together to try to stop Doctor Doom and the Darkhold and all this other stuff going on. But they glimpsed some pages of the Darkhold, and that just completely warped their minds. And what we then get to, at least in this story, is a glimpse of a sort of Iron Man that could be, if affected by the Darkhold. It's kind of like a stealth what-if in which we sort of go back to Tony's beginnings and it takes place in a very small area inside Tony's workshop. It's Tony and Pepper and Happy, for the most part, just the three of them going through. But as horrible nightmare stuff happens to Tony and how it affects them and then starts to affect some other people, it's so gross. Guillermo Sana's art reminds me of a whole bunch of other artists, really. Like, there's just little bits and pieces here. But then he has his own style of drawing the organic, gory bits throughout this as things deteriorate, things go wrong, and and nasty stuff starts happening. And big shout out to Ian Herring on the colors, like doing some really cool stuff with pastels and some neon colors and really great uses of blank white space as well. This is terrific. It's a one shot. Again, you don't have to have read Darkhold Alpha to enjoy it, but if you do, it adds a whole bunch of other layers. Absolutely. Um, Immortal Hulk number 50 arrives this week. And so, of course, it will end up being one of our picks. This is the final chapter. And it's really hard to believe it's been three years of some of the most masterful comics around. And at the end of the day, look, this is the Al Ewing story. This is the Al Ewing show. I really just feel like we're witnessing an artist at his best. What's so amazing about Immortal Hulk is that it's all happening at once. The vision, the execution, the intelligence of him as a writer and his huge expansive mind and his very obvious eagerness to dig into the details and the minutiae of the Marvel Universe. What makes Bruce Banner Bruce Banner? What about his origin story makes him the unique character that he is? And then on the on the other end of things, just the raw, pure love and emotion and sometimes romance that he can also just do so beautifully. We've seen it all over the course of these 50 issues. Now I'm doing a big kind of retrospective overall bird's eye view look here because I don't know if there's been a more anticipated finale in a very long time, but the place where we knew we were going, we go there. And what's so cool about this issue is that Al gives a lot of answers. Al dares to go there. He dares to tell his story front to back, gives the answers that we've been looking for and some answers that we didn't even know we were looking for. And it's all packed with the mind, the heart, the skill, wonderful execution across the board. So here's to you, Al Ewing. Thank you for this gift of Immortal Hulk. It has been such a wild, unbelievable ride. And it's been funny to see Venom and Immortal Hulk sort of rise at the same time. Both of those are 2018 launches. And now, of course, Donnie and Al are trading places. So a ton to be excited about in the realm of Al Ewing, in the realm of Venom, in the realm of Donnie Cates, in the realm of Hulk. So a lot to love here a lot to dig into. I'm very, very, very interested to see what uh, the world of comics has to say about this issue 50. Yeah. Our third must-read pick of the week this week is X-Men number four. Right off the bat, 
I got to give huge, huge kudos to regular series artist Pepe Larraz for the cover, which is a like an homage to the Headless Horseman. Pepe and Marte Gracia coming together for this cover of uh, Cyclops on a horse, and it's it's stunning. This is just so good. This issue is called Nightmare on 86th Street. There's a whole lot going on in that title um, because it stars as the antagonist Nightmare, the uh, typical Doctor Strange villain. Nightmare pops up because there's no Doctor Strange right now. He dead. If you've been reading the pages of uh, the death of Doctor Strange, you see that. So he capitalizes by jumping into Earth and, and just getting into people's heads and giving them nightmares, as is his want to do. This is brought to us by writer Jerry Duggan, art by Javier Pina, colors by Eric Arseniega, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. And I love nightmare i think he's one of the coolest villains that we have and jerry lets jerry and javier in here let him really mess with the, the x-men he, he starts digging into uh cyclops's dreams there's just one sequence where he's just floating around new york city enjoying people's nightmares and there's a panel that javier draws of him where a woman wakes up and the next panel is nightmare and he's got this look of pure ecstasy on his face and he says mmm Guilt over a deceased spouse. Delicious. And it's it's so messed up, but it's also so wonderfully done. You get to experience some of the nightmares for the core members of the X-Men team, Cyclops and Wolverine, Jean Grey. But while this becomes a nightmare spotlight, you know, battle issue, it also flips around and becomes a big Jean Grey issue where you get to see Jean being friggin' awesome. Uh, one of the cool little touches in here is seeing and hearing Jean Grey's like nomination request for being on the X-Men because all the X-Men of this current iteration, this team, were chosen by the mutants of Krakoa during the Hellfire Gala. And all the mutants made their like sort of like, you should choose me as an X-Men because blah, blah, blah. So we see what Jean said in here. And Jean Grey rules. And so that was cool. On the other uh, side of this, uh, at the end, we have some really interesting developments for some problems that the X-Men are going to face. I don't want to give anything away, but I was so hopeful about the Krakoan era for X-Men. Like, just thinking, ah, oh, it's going to be great. Like, mutant kind will flourish and there'll be joy and happiness. Everything is going wrong for the X-Men, which makes for great stories. But, like, I want to what if the Krakoan age was just perfect. Yeah, <laughs> like the, give me that series where everybody, where it's just like all the mutants just sitting on Krakoa, like we don't have to fight anymore. <laughs> this is it. It's like thirty-two pages of that. Right. I want. That. Yeah. <laughs> Those are our picks this week, and now we are diving into all the new Marvel mags coming your way on October thirteenth, and uh, we will be doling out some pumpkin bombs, folks. And again. Like I said, with the substitute title for this episode of the Boo List, Pumpkin Bomb, it's not a bad thing this week. It's actually a representative. It's a metaphor, man, for how <laughs> explosive and how good these books are. And, of course, we're kicking things off with Amazing Spider-Man number 76. This issue, like the one before it, it's just so well-paced, so well-plotted. You got the stuff going on with Pete. You have the stuff going on with Ben. You have stuff going on with Aunt May. You have other things all swirling around all at the same time. And it's just executed beautifully. It's so much fun to see just like 
Pat Gleason's Spider-Man silhouette. You're like, oh God, there it is. Oh, it's so good. There are two words that are said on the final page of this issue by Ben Riley, and those are entirely representative of what I'm feeling right now about ASM. So go pick it up and see what that means. Yeah. We've got Avengers number 49 this week, which gets my pumpkin bomb for letting me use the term three-way dance, a wrestling term I love, uh, which means three parties at each other in one big fight. You've got the Avengers versus the Winter Guard versus Namor and the Defenders of the Deep in a big throwdown in Atlantis, and it's wild. There's also this double-page spread, which I will not give away towards the end of the book, which feels bigger than the pages it exists on. I, I don't even know how it was drawn there. The muscles are exploding through the page borders. It's so cool. Oh, yeah. All right. Next up, we are following along with young T'Challa in Black Panther Legends number one. And this is a really, really fun and interesting look at that era of T'Challa's life. And here, I think Tochi Anibuchi, who is the writer, does such a good job of capturing that youthful spirit and really just imbuing young T'Challa with one like the drip drops of who he will become, but also with a very distinct young voice. Like you look at this kid and you go, I've met this kid before. I know exactly who it is. It feels so authentic and so real. Also, Setor Fiat Zigbe, who's the artist, I think is a very idiosyncratic artist. And I'm a really big fan right off the bat because I think Setor is one of those artists who uses precious few lines, but is able to get a lot of expressiveness and emotion out of those few lines. It's a really, really tough skill to manage, but it's done really wonderfully here. So a lot of youthful and fun energy here. My pumpkin bomb goes to Tochi and Setor, who I think are killing it right from the start. We've got an Eternals one-shot with Eternals Forever this week, which gets my pumpkin bomb for just digging back into lots of classic Eternals stuff. This is just feels like an Eternal story that Ralph Macchio, the writer, would have wanted to do um, following up on all the original Jack Kirby Eternal stuff, which he got to do a whole bunch of stuff like that. So um, it fits in with a lot of what Ralph has done over the years with Eternal stuff. So you get Gilgamesh and you get Icarus and you get some cool Unimind stuff. Very nice. All right. Now this next book is Game of Flight number five, part five of five. It's been a really, really fun limited series, one that it just leaves you wanting more. I think as you might expect in this corner of the Marvel Universe and the stories that have been told here, obviously we're talking about a Marvel Hulk number 50 before. And given the fact that Al Ewing is co-writer of this series alongside Polist fave Crystal Frazier, there are certain sort of like key elements to expect. But I've really enjoyed to see certain things here played up in unique ways and other things like undermined in really delightful ways. So shout out once more to Al and shout out to Crystal for a huge amount of excellent work put into not just this issue, but these five issues of Gamma Flight. So, hey, Crystal, I'm tossing you a pumpkin bomb. It's not what it seems, though. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we've got more pumpkin bombs to give out, including one I'll give out for Iron Man number 13. My pumpkin bomb goes to artist Cafu because this book is stunning. It is gorgeous to look at. It somehow, like, makes the absurdity of Iron Man with a team that includes like Gargoyle and Misty Knight and, um, and Scarlet Spider and Frogman. The absurdity of Frogman on a team going up against Korvac as Korvac tries to attain godhood inside Galactus's ship 
it feels real and visceral and works, but also has humanity and lightness to it. It's so good. Uh, there's some gnarly stuff that happens in here, but Cafu's art is just like beyond words, this issue. Next up, we have Kang the Conqueror, number three. And I think this is such a perfect exploration of that character. So shout out to Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, the writers. But my pumpkin bomb this week goes to Carlos Magno because good God, this issue is gorgeous. The level of detail is crazy. I mean, I'm talking about some super small panels that are like somehow able to pack in like Big action beats. It's wild. It's crazy. And it all works. So Carlos Magno, seeing him just doing backflips on these pages is so much fun. So pumpkin bomb to Carlos. Yeah. All right. We've got a gnarly book here with Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land, number two. I always debate with people, Kazar, Kazar. It don't matter. He's a white man in the Savage Land doing his <laughs> thing with dinosaurs. It's a, a wild book. I got to give much love to this book and to reptile for giving us lots of good dino action the last couple months particularly this one set in the savage land where there's tons and tons of dinosaurs and even kazar himself kazar is he's like turning into dinosaurs as or, or like getting imbued with some of their traits after his resurrection there's some really wild stuff here zach thompson doing some excellent body horror weird eco stuff throughout this title, but Herman Garcia taking those ideas and making them feel really visceral and cool. And then you have Mateus Lopez with the color palette here at times so bright and pastel-y and beautiful, even though there's stuff that's going on that is just gross and Cronenbergian. It's a fabulous title. I would give my pumpkin bomb just to this creative team doing some some really wonderful stuff together. I, I'm excited to see where the heck this goes because I just don't know, which yeah. for me is fabulous. Absolutely. All right. Next up, we have Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 31. Ah, Good God. I love this series. Christopher Allen, who is the artist on this book, absolutely gorgeous. But what I want to talk about more is like what's clearly just such a wonderful vision being executed here that comes from the mind of Saladin Ahmed. Because what we're getting into here is one, incredibly sparse with the dialogue, very, very little dialogue. In this issue, I have to say Taskmaster is the main threat. It's so cool. I love seeing a big, big villain like that show up and challenge Miles. But what we're seeing here, I think, is Saladin playing a little bit with melodrama which I love. Anyway, I can go on and on and on. I love it. I think it's so good. That's Miles, number 31. Yeah. Over in Shang-Chi, number five, we've got Iron Man versus Shang-Chi. What more do you need? How about a pumpkin bomb, which I'm going to give to a panel that DK Ruan draws of Esme, aka Sister Dagger, uh, one of uh, Shang-Chi's siblings. She's his youngest sibling, and she's amazing and wonderful and funny. And there's a panel where they've had the fight with Iron Man and the helmet's on the ground. She picks it up. She puts it on her head. But it, the helmet's so big and her body's so small and it's so cute and wonderful. I love this panel. Jean Lun Yang, the writer, does such a great job of weaving all the different parts of what makes a Marvel comic great together here. And shout out to Jean. The news just broke recently that uh, Disney Plus is putting out a series adaptation of his graphic novel, American Born Chinese, which is terrific. That'll be on Disney Plus in, I don't know, the future? Question mark? So sick. 
Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. So awesome. All right, now we're jumping into Star Wars land with Star Wars Dr. Afra number 15. Writer Alyssa Wong and penciler Minkyu Jung do such a great job at keeping up the pace even when characters are having a quiet moment. Even when it seems like the action has died down, you never feel like Afra is comfortable. You always feel like there's something boiling underneath, like there's somewhere that she needs to go, something she needs to do, or someone she needs to run from. And that's what makes this book and this character so special. So well done to the creative team and pumpkin bong to Dr. Afra herself, who's just the best. Yeah. More Star Wars with Star Wars, The High Republic Trail of Shadows, number one, this new series that's set during the time of The High Republic. I'm going to give my pumpkin bomb in this issue to this full page splash of two young kids who eventually become Jedi, where there's this thing, person, creature thing singing, we're coming to take you away. It is horrifying. (laughs) This is a wonderful page, nightmare fuel. I love it. Next up, we have Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters number five. This is the conclusion of this big, huge crossover event that we've been witnessing over the last few months. There are big character reveals. There are really, really big moments. A lot of stuff that I did not know was coming here, as well as the announcement, the big signposts of what's next for uh, Star Wars comics in general. So read this, not just for the excellent story that you're going to get, but also for what's coming in 2022, for example. Really, really big stuff happening here. Yeah. Back out of Star Wars and back into space with Symbiote Spider-Man Crossroads (laughs) number four as uh, Symbiote Spider-Man is now in space alongside a really gross version of the Hulk. There's Eternals in here. There are Deviants, Black Cat. But I think my favorite stuff is all the interactivity that Peter David writes around the version of Hulk, which is popping around in this issue. That's going to get my pumpkin bomb. You give me Peter David writing any version of the Hulk, I'm going to be a happy camper. Oh, yeah. All right. My final book I'm covering this week is Warhammer 40,000, the Sisters of Battle, number three. There's a scene that happens in the middle here where a character shows up with like a clutch of severed heads wrapped in barbed wire, walks up and has like a very cool frank conversation. That's sort of the turning point of this issue. And I think the turning point so far of this Sisters of Battle story altogether. And that's just one element of this story. So pumpkin bomb to that scene in particular, if you read it, you'll know exactly which one I mean, exactly the emotional sort of peak in the storytelling kind of climax that we reach there. But of course, pumpkin bomb to Thurman, who's the best. Yeah. All right, last new book of the week is X-Force number 24. There's so much that happens in this issue. You've got a tiny little plant version of Black Tom Cassidy. And if that was the only sentence I uttered, you'd be like, yes, I will take two. But then little plant Black Tom has to travel inside Hank McCoy Beast, almost in a uh, an inner space type situation. He's going into his body, trying to track down little fleshy Russian nesting doll assassins inside Beast's body. This is a comic book we're talking about. On the other side, you've got a Colossus story that culminates in a moment where I gasped. Friggin' Benjamin Percy. I'm going to give my pumpkin bomb to an eyeball. 
and I'll leave it at that. You'll know it when you read the book. It's damn good. That wraps it up for this week's new Marvel mags. Now, I want to look over towards the Infinity Comics coming out this week. X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic number seven, as well as a whole host of other Infinity Comics. So much to enjoy. We have Deadpool Infinity Comic number three. We also have, of course, the smash hit. It's Jeff Infinity Comic number eight. So much to love in there. Now I want to also jump over to collections where uh, we have Spider-Man, Spider's Shadow, an absolutely beautiful, incredible story by Chip Zdarsky and company. Spider-Man, Spider-Shadow, go pick it up. Yeah. Uh, Over on Marvel Unlimited, in addition to all the Infinity Comics Tucker talked about, there's a whole bunch of great issues. Thor and Loki, Double Trouble, number four. X-Force, number 21. New issues of Avengers, uh, Captain America, number 30. But the first issue of the current run of X-Men is now in Marvel Unlimited, so you can get a sense of what this team is about and see some just astonishingly gorgeous artwork from Pepe La Raza, Marte Gracia. Get into it now on MU or get into it later because right now you are going to listen to us do a little reading club with who, Tucker? We are chatting with Taboo and B. Earl, the writing team behind Werewolf by Night, the most recent run of that series, as well as Spirits of Vengeance Spirit Writer. We're getting into so much there with them, two of the best dudes around. So let's jump into that reading club right now. Tucker, 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 are you ready for what I know will be a lively, wonderful, and spirited conversation? Because our guests this week are Taboo and B. Earl. Taboo, how are you? Man, Ryan, it's a pleasure. Or Agent M, as I usually (laughs) call you. Mr. M, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. And Tucker, it's such an honor to, to meet you, brother. Oh, the honor's mine. I am so excited to talk to you two guys. And B. Earl, how are you? What's up? I'm great. I'm uh, I'm calling in from Fairfield, Connecticut right now and uh, not so sunny, uh, rainy <laughs> Connecticut. I'm in the Bronx, so it's not that far. And so, yeah, it's uh, we got some rain, but you know what? We're excited because we are here. We're talking about Werewolf by Night. We're going to talk a little bit about Spirits of Vengeance Spirit Rider, which is the Kushala book. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff. And I'm just going to warn you two right now, Tucker's going to get real like existential with you and i'm gonna ask you like do you like comic book and so that's the kind of uh one-two punch you've got ahead of yeah, you yeah that is absolutely our dynamic i don't know if anyone's ever put it so succinctly but that is 100 percent what marvel's pull list is <laughs> um so uh, all right i would love to hear about each of you and growing up what your relationship with comics was or even just kind of nerdy stuff in general, fandom, what you were into, what made you kind of aspire to be a creative person, all that kind of stuff, whatever comes to mind. So Ben, let's start with you. What comes to mind when I mention that? Well, so I I got inspired uh, by a family friend who was an artist at around the age of 10. His name was John Mitchell. And I saw his artwork and I was like, whoa, that's so cool. I want to start drawing. 
And then X-Men number one, the Jim Lee and that that whole run, you know, came out. And that was what got me into comic books. You know, there's a little shop in uh, a little town next door to where I grew up in New Jersey called Comic World. So that was my weekly. We would ride our bikes to the comic book shop. And every week, obviously, we would take whatever money we earned, you know, from mowing lawns and whatever <laughs> to go buy our comic books. So my dream was always to be a comic book artist. I always wanted to draw for Marvel. Every day I'd be drawing and I was always copying, obviously, Rob Liefeld and Jay Lee and Jim Lee. And, you know, those were really my big inspirations. And obviously Image had just come out like this was 1991 and 92. And, you know, so I was always really into comic books. And then unfortunately, as a kid, you only have so much money to spend at the comic book shop. And we all got into Magic the Gathering when it first came out. So that was kind of what pulled me away from comics for a bit. And then actually, I got back into comics doing a documentary called Sex, Lies, and Superheroes. Actually, Frank Miller was the one who came up with that title when we were interviewing him. And we, you know, interviewed everyone from Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor and Frank Miller. And this was in 2001, I want to say. This is one of the very first film projects I did as a college student. I was like, it was such an amazing project. And it pulled me back into comics. I went to Comic-Con for the first time in 2002. I uh, met a lot of folks there. I ended up becoming uh, friends with Jim Kruger. And that was when I started throwing my comic book Sunday parties in LA. And all of a sudden, all sorts of comic book creators and film people. And, you know, I ran them for 10 years. And that that's really been, you know, my relationship with comics started, obviously, at a very young age, wanting to be an artist, and then ultimately got into the space of, you know, film and television and animation and hosting these events and then you know kind of got pulled back into it when I met Will I am and worked on the Black IPs project uh, Masters of the Sun. I'd never written a comic book, you know, don't tell Will that now. <laughs> you know, but I'd always known how to tell stories being a film editor and filmmaker and so that that's really kind of my trajectory with comics and and geekdom and obviously Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering, you know, it's like <laughs> if there's something geeky, I've been into it and still do it and love it and and that's how Tab and I met was actually at Comic-Con and I will pass the mic to Tab and he can uh, yeah. jump into that mix. <laughs> yeah, so just to be honest with you my love and geekdom started with toys. I'm a big toy collector, dude. From Mego Toys, big shout out to Frank, Woho, Wojo, however you want to say it. Big shout out to Marty Abrams and the folks at Mego Toys for always hooking me up. Also, my Hasbro family, G.I. Joe. I mean, toys, bro. That's how I got started. From seven, eight, it just started developing a way for me to create a universe or a world when, you know, there was like stresses and reality was a little bit overwhelming, I would go outside and play with my toys and I would create my own world, my own scenario, my own storytelling. And my love and appreciation for the toy collecting world led me to Comic-Con, you know, and I met folks like Daniel Fink from Marvel and Jason Latore, which eventually led me to meet Joey Q, Joey Casada, and C.B. Sabolsky is like the godfather for me right now. It just all this trust and belief in us, it's just been a, a blessing. So it started with toys and then it evolved into really immersing myself in the culture and meeting like-minded folks like Benny B. Earl when we did Master of the Sun. And we said to ourselves, like, how can we tell stories from a native lens? And fortunately, we were able to create Werewolf by Night, big shout out to Red Wolf, and Kashala. So that came with our journey, B. Earl and myself, we've been chipping away at trying to 
you know, create this brand that represents uh, not only an inclusive style of writing, storytelling, but it also has uh, cultural consultants that we consult with to bring an authentic, genuine representation to Native heroes. There's so much I want to touch on between the the two of you and your stories. Uh, BRO, I love that you mentioned in the same breath, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, and Jay Lee. Jay is one of my all-time favorite artists. He did amazing work at Marvel. He did Hellshock, which is such a cool book and so weird and trippy. He's done a ton of stuff. But Jay, it's so wild to think that Jay Lee was like contemporarily like the big superhero artist because he's so dark and so weird and so creepy at times. And he's so gnarly. His look is so good. So I'm, I'm psyched that you brought him up just because I think Jay doesn't get nearly enough appreciation. I agree hundred percent. I mean, Jay Lee is just someone who just as an artist so inspired me because I was really, I was also into like death metal and like I was a metalhead kid and punk rock, you know, <laughs> and like Jay Lee was death metal, man. I mean, as an artist, like that's what he brought. And I was like, yeah, this is dark, cool stuff. <laughs> you know? so, big fan. Yeah. Tab, you were talking about action figures. You were showing off some Joes. We're recording this so we could see everybody's video, uh, but our listeners can't. Were those custom Kushala and Red Wolf figures? Yeah, man. You know, being in the culture, you get to meet amazing vendors and toy designers that create these exclusive pieces. And Jacob's Toys, his uh, Instagram is Jacob's Toys. Um, I did a podcast with him and he was like, yo, I, I just created a Kashala exclusive and a Red Wolf exclusive and I would love to send it to you. The art that goes into it, the nostalgia that it's going to bring in the future and also just what it means to me to be able to have these uh, these moments to remember my childhood and to hold on to, to my childhood and the creative essence of that. That's something that I learned being around Stan Lee, rest in peace, when we were doing all the Marvel panels during the Masters of the Sun run, being with Stan Lee, I just really soaked up all his energy and what he was talking about and how he held on to his imagination, even at his age, still wanting to create, still wanting to be contributing to the culture. Like that's something that's important to me too. And it all stems from my love for toys and now into uh, creating Marvel stories. Yeah. Tucker, I'm going to let you get back into it in a second, but I still have to hit a couple more things. Masters of the Sun, for anybody who hasn't checked it out, is the original graphic novel that Black Eyed Peas did with Marvel. So please check it out. It's produced in a large format. It's got beautiful printing. It's It really came out wonderful. So to start to weave together this thread between you two, like both of you talked about meeting at Comic-Con, but Ben, from your perspective... How does that start to become a creative collaboration? What were those early conversations like? And how did you know, like, oh, this is someone I can collaborate with. This is someone yeah. that I feel like there's something here. Well, you know, it, it started, obviously, like I said, it started with Masters of the Sun. I had worked with Will I Am on that project, and then it became a Black Eyed Peas project. So I'd never met Tab. I, we had never met. I knew who he was. I think I don't even think I had seen him around the studio when I would be working with Will. But uh I'm wearing this Thrasher hoodie and he comes out. He's like, yo, bro, what's up? Yo, skate? I'm like, yeah, man. He's like, yo, cool, man. I love skateboarding. Da, da, da. That was how we started. <laughs> it was just talking about <laughs> skateboarding and music. And, and the big thing was kids. Like we both are fathers. So that was, you know, how Tab and I connected at first was about kids and having children, you know, and talking about wanting to make content for our kids. And so we started talking about, you know, everything with, 
Native American storytelling. Tab was like, yo, bro, I want to be doing more stories with Native American storytelling. And, and that lens is, uh, you know, and I was like, wow, that'd be so cool. Because I've always grown up loving mythology and Native American storytelling was something that I always was really interested in, but didn't really have a great depth of knowledge on. So we started talking about that and then we got an opportunity to go pitch Cartoon Network. I was like, I okay, you know, because Tab and I have been talking and we've been collaborating and creatively collaborating about ideas. And that's really what started us off. We went into Cartoon and we, we set up a show with them and uh, are still in development on it right now. But that was the beginning of our professional creative collaboration and where we came away saying, wow, like, this is awesome. And at that time that we did Master of the Sun, when we first met, I also uh, had the opportunity to become Red Wolf um, at that uh, Comic-Con in San Diego. We had a panel uh, at the Marvel booth and I unveiled my love and appreciation for Red Wolf. So I actually became Red Wolf during uh, the cosplay or whatever. And I was like, yo, I want to do Red Wolf. I want to do something with Red Wolf. And I just kept being like that little gnat in people's ear, like, so just that love and appreciation for a native hero at Marvel, kind of something that I championed since Master of the Sun. And it all worked out because we eventually we got to write for uh, Marvel 1000 and we had Red Wolf as news. And that's when CB and Tom came in. Yeah, tell me what, what that's like, because for anybody who hasn't read it, Marvel Comics 1000 is a massive issue celebrating, you know, Marvel's 80th anniversary. And it, it's sort of what if... Marvel Comics, like the number one that came out in 1939, just kept publishing and kept publishing over our 80 years. And so we hit issue 1000. And so we we just had this big, huge celebration of Marvel Comics history, one page stories where everybody gets to tell whatever they want to tell. What's that feeling like? And how do you start to plan out? All right, we have one, you get that one shot almost like, what do you do? Well, I went to the showroom the day that I did the uh, Joey Casada uh, interview. I went to the showroom and uh, I met Tom and CB, as I mentioned, and I kept saying, yo, I want to do red, something with Red Wolf. And they were like, well, we have this thing called Marvel 1000. Would you love to come on and, and create a one page? And I was like, great. I have a partner named B Earl. And they were like, okay, cool. Go do what you do. Send it back to us. And then, you know, however you want to move with what artists you want to bring to the table. So I remember telling Benny, yo, we got to work with Jeffrey Varedi. I said, yo, he did Red Wolf, right? And we brought Jeffrey into the fold and we created an amazing piece on the heels of my involvement at Standing Rock, Protect the Sacred. And Benny just, like, our magic started on Marvel 1000, right, Benny? Absolutely. And again, you know, going back to, you know, what is it like when you get one page to tell a story? It's really challenging because one thing is, is Red Wolf obviously is a very... I don't want to say he's obscure, but your average Marvel reader is not going to know a lot of the history of Red Wolf. And I think that was also the challenge. You can't just go in and tell this Red Wolf story, right? Like Spider-Man. So that was that was a big part of the challenge. And it was like, well, how do we introduce people to Red Wolf and especially people that are going to get all these different stories? And how do we stop them on this page? How do we give them something and really lean into what Jeffrey's great at? Let's figure out a way to give readers an opportunity to kind of get the breadth of Red Wolf through time and also give people the understanding that Red Wolf is more of an idea than just one man. So anyway, yeah, it was it was it was a challenge to kind of wrap our heads around it, but we were like, let's create something that's poetic, 
I mean, I, you know, I'm all about poetry. I was an English major in college <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, how do I use my degree that I got? Because <laughs> I'm not using it in other ways because I studied poetry in college. So <laughs> I've written some poetic rhymes in my day job. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's a professional poet. Uh, <laughs> I've written a couple of rhymes in my life. <laughs> so, so that's how Tab and I approach things. It's like we always look at the poetry of the story and, and the visuals, too. I think that's a really big part of it. So that was really a great opportunity for us to connect and pop off our creative collaboration with that one shot where we could really kind of figure out what we call our ping pong sessions, where we'll throw ideas back and forth and, and come up with an idea. And you know what? Giving our brother Jeffrey that light that he deserved, because he had been working, you know, prior to us working with him, he had been chipping away at Marvel for years. And the fact that he was a native illustrator and creative and, you know, all the things that he brought to the table and continues to bring to the table, he was definitely a blessing to add to our triangle. Benny and I are a duo, but when we work with Marvel projects, we always have Jeffrey come aboard and rock with us in every opportunity we can. Which is great. And, and yeah, shout out to Jeffrey, who has gone through some some health issues over the last couple months, um, been following along, tried to help support however I could and, and, and help him get well. I think think he's in a better he's he's getting better you know ryan like like the email i got from christina his wife was so i mean it was it was heavy on my heart you know that's our brother so we all felt the pain but we all felt like optimism and hope for him and all the prayers and all the people reaching out and giving well wishes we appreciate that as well on twitter and on instagram so you know on behalf of christina because she told me tab I need you to use your voice to be able to, to let people know that Jeffrey's going to get through this and, and send well wishes and prayers. You know, she was kind of like the matriarch that led that movement as well. So my hat's off to Christina and the family. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I'm so happy that, that you guys are able to talk to the person of Jeffrey because we as regular readers of Jeffrey's work and even just speaking from a fan's perspective, I, I love to be able to connect the art with the artist in that way and see someone get the recognition he's deserved over recent years. And, and it really feels like he's on this crazy trajectory right now that is so exciting. To go from your guys' work together then on Marvel Comics 1000, then um, I want to jump over to Werewolf by Night, which let me just read out the credits right here on for issue number one, we have, it's written, of course, by Taboo and Bureau with art by Scott Eaton, inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Miroslav Merva, and uh, letters by uh, VCs Joe Sabino. I was a big fan of this series, and I was curious. Werewolf by Night, obviously, is a legacy sort of mantle, or I guess three words in the Marvel Universe. What inspired you? What made that the right I guess, mantle to have this native character grow into, to have to connect those two and to bring this new character into the foreground and tell this new story. Yeah. So first of all, you know, hats off to the OG Jack Russell, Jack Russoff version. You know, we got none but love and, and appreciation for that version. So when Jake Thomas, our editor, hit me up, he's like, yo, we want to revamp Werewolf by Night, but we want to put a twist to it. And uh, he was like, we want to make it a native character. And I was like, okay, cool, perfect. We'll figure it out how we do it, how we revamp it. And then I brought B. Earl to meet Jake Thomas. And B. Earl and myself, we started like, our brain started working and clicking. And then B. Earl, he's like, yo, Tab, we'll figure it out. 
we'll go into the laboratory, we'll ping pong and we'll figure out this story and I'm gonna let B Earl take it from here. It was cool because, you know, we kind of had a little bit of a box to work within, but we had that free reign. And it was this idea of, you know, I had worked on a project many years ago that was about the Highway of Tears. And for us, it was this idea of, well, how do we how do we take something that has real meaning that we can bring light to, but not do it in a way where it's just hitting you over the head with something and really making it, you know, but bring it, you know, as, as we call it, edutainment kind of vibe, right? And that was kind of the beginning of like, all right, how do we do something with missing people? And that really then kind of tapped in this idea of like, well, what if we did like an Island of Dr. Moreau type thing? And I don't know, me, I'm a huge fan of cyborgs growing up in the 90s comics. I always was like, if I have an opportunity to make a comic book with creatures with cybernetic limbs and lasers and stuff, you know, it's like, let's go. So that was kind of the initial idea of like, there's an evil villain who's turning people into cyborgs and ultimately she wants to find a way to, you know, create this serum that allows humans to exist in an environment that is not fit for humanity right now. And we always talk about this idea of digital analog, you know, where, where Jake the werewolf is the analog and we have this digital creation of our Dr. Eve Mikowski, our evil flying brain, people compared her to Krang. There were just so many like throwbacks in it. Like we just wanted to show our love and appreciation of comics and and cartoons that we grew up in and all the things that we you know love that we put into into the book and you know and obviously take it through a lens of this native american storytelling obviously with this book a lot of it leans heavily on tab's story and the way we work tab will just like throw a bunch of ideas or you know i'll be like yo tell me about growing up so it becomes this thing and then we distill it and i'll synthesize and we'll throw it back and we always liken it to jam sessions you know both of us him being the professional musician me being you know the the amateur bass player that i am it's jamming. And I think that's really how Werewolf by Night came about. But it was a great book. And we just speaking personally for myself, it was such an honor to be able to take the Werewolf by Night mantle. And we got to write a story that we could have for our kids too. You know, it's not bloody and gruesome. It's not horrific. And we always talked about wanting to do a Hulk story. You know, it's really, as you can see on issue one's main cover, it is the uh, the Hulk you know, cover, uh, homage. And it really is a Hulk story. I mean, he's a kid who is going through puberty and he's going through changes. And also add something that's very important to us as a, as a duel is uh, to always bring in cultural consultants that represent whatever tribe or nation we're speaking about. In this instance, we had a Hopi Mexican character named Jake Gomez, who was our lead, who turns into the werewolf. So we brought in a consultant from the Hopi res to be able to consult with us, who's an artist named J.C. Shelton. We also had Dolores and Vince Schilling, who are elders, to be able to consult with us so that we always bring not only great heroes, storytelling, amazing comics, but also the genuine, authentic representation from Indian country. Yeah, that's a great point, Tab. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I'm just, you know, re-going through it again. I'm also like, oh, yeah, this is these are two kids who grew up collecting action figures and playing with toys. And like, that's part of why the series is real great. It's like you have important messages and important touch points and, and things that reflect the real world, but also it's big smash them up superhero comics with cool gnarly villains and, and, and great moments. And the, the inclusion of music into Jake's transformation is one of my favorite things about the whole system. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
I mean, we lean heavy on on our strengths and the music world is something that we know a thing or two about. So we just, you know, Benny and I are always talking about music through mythology or mythology through music. That's our mission statement when we go into creating not just for Marvel, but everything else we do. It was cool to be able to add Redbone and, and Chop Suey, which is a system of a down, like those little nuggets of information were pretty cool too. You know, something that that's very uh, important is the little nuggets of, you know, inspiration of like movies, like they live. We added those type of uh, nuggets. You could speak on that, Benny. Yeah, you know, I've always been a big fan of John Carpenter, as I'm sure we all are. And, you know, <laughs> it's that great line. I mean, I, you know, that that connection to wrestling with Rowdy Roddy Piper, you know, I'm going to kick ass and chew bubble gum and all that. <laughs> you know, it's like those little moments. I think we always love to give those nuggets and, and you know, our hats off to, like you were saying, like we love toys. We love action figures. We love big things. We love horror movies. We love, you know, and anytime we get to make a reference friends to something that's inspired us. Uh, we always love to. And here's the other crazy thing too. And I, I got to give a shout out to my best friend growing up. So together, me and my best friend, John, we always wanted to make comics for Marvel. So he never got a chance to make comics for Marvel. So I made him Cyberwolf. So my best friend, Scott Eaton, drew him my best friend, John, <laughs> with his big beard as the bad mercenary who turns into Cyberwolf <laughs> at the very end. I'm like, bro, you might not have gotten a chance to make a comic, but you're in one. <laughs> yeah, you know what was cool too, Ryan? And, and Tucker was to be able to give Red Wolf a facelift, bro. Like, we modernized him. You know, we loved Predators, so we loved the Billy character in Predator. So we wanted to make Red Wolf a version of that, more modern, more kick-ass. You know, yes, he's an elder statesman in the comic, but I didn't want him to be kind of stereotypical and what we've seen in the past. So Benny and I were like, yo, let's let's give him a facelift, man. Let's revamp him and make him more modern and more badass like Billy from Predator. I just love how much like all of these touch points, all of these references, all these inspirations. I just think it is so cool. Not just the kind of knee jerk feeling to want to tie in your creative work into your inspirations, but then the ability to execute that and to make that like a pure connection that not just satisfies your like crazy, excitable, happy, like nerdy desires, but satisfies the story itself. And I think the the note tab that you made about Red Wolf is like an incredible one as well. I, I think in, in sort of the same way where the ability to organically modernize a character, to bring a character into a light that is like inspirational to you and, 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 and influenced by things that you like and you love, but that also has like just such a pure and clear, obvious and perfect through line for the character, like in isolation in the Marvel universe as a person that's living there. It just works so well. I just wanted to point out for anybody who is reading this on Marvel Unlimited, I'm not sure if they're on there, but the collected edition of Werewolf by Night has a bunch of B. Earl's um, thumbnails and some of the background stuff. And then Scott Eaton's character designs and specifically talking to what y'all were talking about with, with you know, redesigning Red Wolf and, and modernizing him. You get a real sense of the thought process behind all that in some of the background material, which I think is great. I would be remiss to not mention that stuff and also to give a big shout out to Scott, who um, veteran of comics and did some real cool work here. Yeah. Can I, can I just add like big shout out to Scott? Love, love his art and his contribution to Werewolf by Night. But B. Earl, man, like 
I learned so much being in this duel with him about thumbnailing, about paneling, about script beats. I learned about, you know, pacing of the script and the story. I learned about arc. I learned about what's the stakes. This guy is an amazing director. He's not just a writer, dude. This dude is a director. So he sees everything from a director perspective and an editorial perspective. Like he's an editor. And I'm proud that I'm learning so much from him. He's a joy and such an inspiration to have. I mean, look, Tab, he is the best. He always, when I start sometimes, you know, as a creative, we oftentimes doubt ourselves. We feel like we're not, you know, performing as the best we have or we're we're not feeling good about, you know, and it's like, he's always there going, no, dude, just, you know, just go with that. Yeah, that feels good. And, And I think it is the challenge as a creative is to really get your confidence to a certain level where you can trust yourself. I think that's just the challenge in life, right? I mean, it's, you really just have to be able to trust yourself and trust your choices. And that is the thing with comics. I mean, where, you know, when you're writing, you're editing without the assets, you can't look at the medium shot or you can't compare it to a different take. You can't look at, you have to say, no, we're going with a wide shot right here. And this is going to establish this, or we're going with an insert close up, And this is why we have to do this. So you, you're the specificity in writing comics versus filmmaking, you have to be really on point in every little choice you make. And, and that is, you know, coming from being a filmmaker to, you know, writing comics, that is a challenge, but it's so much fun. And it was just such a pleasure and and just a dream come true to be able to see the things that happen in our head and be able to translate it and, and give it to someone else who is a master in their craft and watch what they come back with. For us to be able to work with Scott on our first book out the gate, you know, obviously Jeffrey with the one shot, but with Scott, it was just his consistency, his style and Miroslav's colors. And and honestly, all around, we were so blessed to have that team right from the get. We had an amazing team, dude, like Lindsay, Shannon, like I mentioned, Jake Thomas, the fact that they were open-minded to our ideas and they, they didn't really like change much. We, we would turn in our script and it would be like, okay, cool. We got minor notes, maybe sometimes no notes. But the fact is, is we got a shot to be us and we didn't have to compromise our contribution and we owe it all to our team. Our team made this all happen. Yeah. I mean, it's Scott Hanna's inks. I mean, you know, that dude is his weight on his lines. Beautiful. I mean, what he did with, with Scott's art. I mean, just, again, it was what a dream come true to be able to see something that is just an idea come to life. And that is the beautiful thing of comics. And I think the beautiful thing about comics is that it is something that's very temporal, how you can pace through the reading and how you can take a reader on a very specific journey as opposed to a book or as opposed to a film. There's something really special about it. And to have that team, to be able to bring Werewolf by Night to to life, I mean, yeah, killed it. Yeah, I I really appreciate you guys mentioning Jake and Shannon and Lindsay. That's Lindsay Koek, Shannon Andrews, Balsteros, and and, and as Tab mentioned, Jake Thomas, the editors on, on Werewolf by Night, because you mentioned it, Tab, and you can feel it as a reader. It feels like your creative strengths, your creative instincts are able to flow onto the page, both of you guys. And like, I think a perfect example of that is in issue number three with the Song of the Wolf, like in the middle of the comic. That's so unique. That's something you don't really see. It's just like this extra bit of material that makes the book better. And then, of course, you get like this amazing Song of the Wolf arc by Jeffrey, which is incredible. And I I love 
seeing like that be able to connect those dots. I want to say something about Please. that. Always make it a point to never step on Jeffrey's beautiful art with lettering. Always give him his piece of art and just make it about the beautiful contribution that is the art. And then you have the lettering in, on the next page or whatever. Totally. And it works perfectly. But where I was going to lead organically continuing into the Kashala story, talked about the influences, the inspirations for Werewolf by Night. Could you guys talk about what those were for Kushala? Like those early ping pong sessions, like you guys say, what were the back and forth? What were the touch points? Where did that all start? Well, the first thing that kind of hit me was I always loved Easy Rider and I wanted to tell an Easy Rider story into hell. And I wanted to put <laughs> Mephisto on the back of a motorcycle. That was like <laughs> with Kashala and Johnny Blaze going. Like that was the original idea that we started playing with. And, you know, the music, and we wanted to make it this like 60s, like really road trippy type thing. And ultimately, you know, we kind of had to, to pivot from that. And that pivot was, well, how do we tell a story that kind of really leans into uh, Kashala's powers and also at the same time find a way to give her that backstory that we didn't really get to see in her original Doctor Strange run way back when. I mean, we saw bits and pieces of it, but for us, it was like, how do we tell something that's not about a demon getting inside of her? Ultimately, we created a new character. So these were a lot of things at the time I was like really deep diving into philosophy, Hobbes's Leviathan, the social contract. So these are all these inspirations that kind of came into it. And that's where the Leviathan name came from. But yeah, I mean, it was really like, how do we tell a road trip story and make it really very personal, but at the same time, also introduce characters that people maybe haven't really had a chance to get to know. So Johnny Blaze, uh, I'll let Tab jump in on that too. <laughs> yeah, so besides all that, as we do, we always bring in cultural consultants to represent whatever hero we're working with. And in this case, we had Kashala, who's an Apache. So we brought in Tony Duncan, who's an Apache from the San Marcos uh, band in Arizona. And we also brought in Kenneth Shirley, who's a Navajo. And although we didn't have Navajo on this story, he was a definitely a con contribution as far as like his wisdom and his energy and his, just him giving us a blessing from his perspective and having another native voice attached so that we can, once again, give it that authentic, genuine representation. I love that. I think it's really cool for us at Marvel to have obviously more representation, more characters that can speak to more people and knowing that a kid can pick this up in 10 years and maybe they see something in themselves, even if they're fighting giant Cthulhu like monsters, you know, there's, there's something that they can see like so many other kids for the last 80 years have been able to find those connections. So it's really cool. It's really special that you guys are able to bring these characters and these ideas and these feelings to the page. And I also acknowledge Jeffrey Varegi for what he did with Indigenous Voices, bringing all these amazing Native creatives from Marvel Universe, bringing them to be able to write, to illustrate. We were also very honored to be part of that book, Indigenous Voices, uh, with Jeffrey. So it's beautiful to have Marvel be open-minded to the mosaic of different representation and heroes, especially like us being part of that movement, right, Benny? Like us contributing whatever we can to bring Indigenous voices to the masses is very important to us. For us, so much of what we do is about building platforms and giving opportunities. I mean, we know that 
we have an opportunity here to be part of a vanguard that is really leading a, a charge, so to speak, of giving opportunities for different voices to be heard and also exploring different sorts of ideas and spiritualities and cultures and this and that. And for us, you know, Tab and myself, it's about discovery of our own selves. I know we hadn't really spoken too much on identity, but, you know, that's something Tab and I always talk about, you know, even for myself, it's it's finding my own identity in a spiritual space where growing up Jewish and Catholic, you know, you kind of just grow up with a lot of guilt, but you're figuring out, you know, culturally and spiritually and things like that. And I think, you know, a lot of our characters that we are working with and either creating or, or getting to be able to add on to the legacy of it is dealing with that generationalism about connection to family, as Tab always says, matriarchs, about these kind of identity, but at the same time, also understanding who we are as a part of the human tapestry, I think for us is such an important thing. You know, it's like, yes, it's it's important to embrace and understand our culture, but also accept each other's cultures and the meaning that we all bring to each other. And I think that's what our storytelling is really about. I think that's so well said by both of you guys. And and I love the through line here. We've been talking so much about those like cultural, pop cultural through lines that went through from, from childhood through to being a creatively inspired person through to your work professionally today. But of course, that is as big of an element, the personal side of things, the matters of identity, the matters of, of just who you are on a core level and bringing that to bear in stories like the ones we were reading today. It's so incredible to see. It's so incredible to see just as a reader, as a fan. So with that, I think, thank you both so much for coming on to talk today. I mean, it's such a pleasure. I, I feel like we could have gone for another three hours just talking oh, yeah. about. You know, Tavid, this is what Tab and I do every day anyway. Like we just get on the phone and like, you know, we're like, yo, what about this? What about that? Oh, yo, we should write that down and turn that into another project. All right, hip pocket, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what, Tucker, I want to acknowledge and say thank you to Jasmine Estrada for taking the time to reach out to me and my wife and schedule this and then, you know, bringing in B Earl so that we can find time in his schedule as well to make this all happen. Thank you, Ryan, for always supporting us, man. I, I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your guidance and just what you mean to our culture. And Tucker, it's, it's an honor to meet you and to be part of this amazing show. So I just always have to give my flowers to, to the folks that make this possible and always humbly, respectfully say thank you guys. I will say that on our team Slack, I was like, can we get Tab on and BRL? We want to talk about some books. I think I said, I was like, you know, this is going to be like the nicest, best conversation. <laughs> um, and everybody's going to be like the biggest fan of Taboo after this. There you go. I'm right. Everybody <laughs> yeah. here is just like, oh, mm, this is all just a big, I told you so moment for Ryan. <laughs> Yo, dude, honestly, I'm just a big geek and a big toy nerd and a comic book head now because of B Earl and his inspiration, what he means to me as not only his partner, but also as a fan of him, you know, he's definitely on a trajectory to be one of the greatest writers one of the greatest directors and, you know, I'm just proud to be on this journey with him. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Look, I, I got to say, I mean, Taboo is family and a brother and, and we've been really blessed to have this journey with Marvel and, and we're so grateful. And I think it's just the beginning, as they say, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be talking again in, in due time. Absolutely. Thank you guys again. Thank you guys so much. See what I tell you, the best. Thanks again to Taboo and Bureau for talking to us. True. Ding, dang delights the two of them. That wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Pagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And now 
with Immortal Hulk ending. Brad is uh, trying to really push along his pitch for the Immortal Brad. And you know what, Brad? I'm here for it. Yeah, same. Long live Brad. Chant it with me, folks, in your car. Long live Brad. Long live Brad, indeed. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.